Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the son-in-law of the grifter-in-chief, whose many bankruptcies, including casinos where the house always wins, placed Donald Trump high up in the pantheon of bad businessmen. Now, former top White House aide Jared Kushner appears to be taking up that mantle. Having already been bailed out of his disastrous investment at 666 Fifth Avenue, Kushner's new affinity partner's private equity investment fund of $2.5 billion has been bailed out by his buddy, the Saudi Crown Prince MBS Mohammed bin Salman, to the tune of $2 billion from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund but not before the fund's managers objected to the deal, citing Kushner's lack of experience, poor due diligence and excessive asset management fees, only to be overruled by MBS. Joining us is Anel Sheline, a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who is an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa, and has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen, and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. We'll discuss this monumental example of nepotism and corruption with a murderous brat rewarding a failed presidency just six months after it ended, at the same time refusing to help lower the price of gas to hurt the current president in the hope that Trump will come back in 2024. We will explore this example of the opposite of meritocracy, where government service is turned into private gain as family connections trump competence, not to mention ethics. Then we'll examine the results of Sunday's first round in the French elections ahead of the April 24th runoff between President Macron and the pro-Putin right-wing candidate Marine Le Pen. Joining us is Philippe Malière, a professor of French and European politics at University College London. In 2007, he was awarded the Marcel Liebman Chair in Political Science at the Université Libre de Bruxelles and his main publications are about the French Socialist Party, French politics and European social democracy, and we will discuss Macron's challenge to win back the 22% of voters on the left Macron has alienated. Then finally we will speak with Robert Bell, former chair of the Finance and Business Management Department at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York and the author of The Green Bubble and Impure Science. He joins us to discuss his article at Le Monde, Breaking the EU's Dilemma, which outlines the obvious solutions to the trap Ukraine and Europe find themselves in as they finance the war against them and trade with the enemy. As gas and oil flows through Ukraine in pipelines to markets in Europe where dependency on Russian gas finances Putin's war against democracy and the rule of law, wind and solar stand out as far cheaper and much quicker alternatives to LNG and nuclear. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. 
And joining us now is Anel Sheline, who is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She's worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco and Oman. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anel Sheline. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And we know that the Republicans are going to make a big deal out of Hunter Biden, which they tried to do in the last election. And of course, it was tangential in many ways, not even tangential, actually, to uh, Trump's first impeachment efforts to dig up dirt on on Joe Biden because of Hunter Biden's activities in Ukraine. So there's a Republican investigation underway, and if the Republicans take over the House in November, as many expect, McCarthy and others will be leading Benghazi-like panels into Hunter Biden. But what's just happened, and we've learned from the New York, New York Times, that the Saudis, or at least Mohammed bin Salman, is essentially giving a $2 billion gift to Jared Kushner six months after he left the White House to set up a $2.5 billion investment fund, uh, a hedge fund. And apparently the Saudi $620 billion public investment fund, they thought it was a bad idea, but they were overruled by Mohammed bin Salman and Kushner got this $2 billion gift. So do you think the Republicans are going to talk about that? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I doubt it. Um, I, I imagine the Democrats might. Um, you know, I mean, in, in general, you know, this, this speaks to a broader issue about the public investment fund, which is the Saudi sovereign wealth fund, because the, the Saudis portray it as acting um, autonomously, that it, you know, it, it strives to make investments and it's supposed to serve the interests of the Saudi people. Um, but clearly, the this four-member panel that includes um, such prominent people as, as the head of Saudi Aramco, for example, these, these four all said that they were opposed to the idea of giving Jared Kushner's new fund $2 billion. And, and then it was just overruled by MBS. And so this notion that MBS doesn't control the Public Investment Fund, or PIF, is clearly false. Well, the objections from the board of the $620 billion Saudi Public Investment Fund, just to quote some of their objections, the inexperience of Kushner's affinity fund management and the possibility the kingdom would be responsible for the bulk of the investment and risk, which seems to be the case, $2 billion out of $2.5 billion. Due diligence on the fledgling form's operation, uh, they found to be unsatisfactory in all aspects, and a proposed asset management fee that seemed excessive, and uh, the public relations risk, uh, given that the father-in-law, former president uh, Donald Trump, is still active in politics. Uh, he controls the Republican Party. So it sounds like the board of the Saudi Public Investment Fund were doing their job. 
Yes. I mean, so, it, you know, it was this this four member panel um, who had expressed their concerns and then they were overruled. Um, and, you know, so this this is sort of a question. Some of the speculation we've seen about it is, is this a thank you to Jared for his efforts? Um, for example, after uh, journalist Jamal Hashogi was murdered, Jared was one of the key voices pushing to say that the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia should not be affected by that, that, you know, we we know that that really could have been a, a watershed moment in getting the U.S. to rethink why we continue to sort of provide um, essentially unconditional support to the Saudis in, in security and in many other ways. And and we know that that Congress worked hard to to try to oppose it, but or to try to impose some kind of accountability there. Um, but, you know, even in things not only related to Hashogi, but also in terms of Saudi Arabia's behavior towards Yemen, um, that they ended up passing a war powers resolution successfully that had bipartisan support. Even Republicans were disgusted by what the Saudis had done to Hashogi and to Yemen, and Trump then vetoed it. Um, but so then this is the question, is this about a thank you to Jared Kushner or is this more of a kind of, you know, we hope to get Trump back into the White House. And so we're going to just go ahead and and give you two billion dollars here. And the understanding being that you will continue to operate in a manner that advances our interests. So I imagine the same applies to Vladimir Putin, doesn't it? I mean, he uh, helped get Trump into the into the White House in 2016, and I imagine he wants Trump to come back because Trump is the gift that keeps on giving. Putin's main uh, goal is to divide America and turn Americans against each other and weaken us from within, and we're obliging him. <laughs> well, that is that is absolutely the case. I did see a recent opinion poll. Um, which indicated some movement um, among Republicans that that view Russia as an enemy. Um, I mean, in general, I, I I do think I commend the Biden administration for not uh, launching World War Three, um, which I think some folks in Washington seem to be <laughs> eager to do, um, which is very alarming. So again, I, I don't think it's necessarily useful to to adopt a super aggressive stance towards Russia. But, you know, we know that in the past, under Trump, there had been this sort of um, narrative among Republicans, also obviously among sort of the far right, both in this country and other countries, that view Putin as as they sort of admire him and, you know, other other far right leaders that are, are pushing sort of racist ethnopolitics see him as as a champion of their sort of racist ideas about the future of politics. So the fact that Republicans are increasingly willing to to push back against this sort of pro-Putin narrative, I do think is encouraging and I think largely reflects the, the extensive amount of media coverage that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is receiving. And again, I'm speaking with Anel Sheline, who's a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She has worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen, was recently a fellow at the Rice University Baker Institute for Public Policy, and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 
focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco, and Oman. But in terms of Mohammed bin Salman owing Kushner a big favor, but largely owing Donald Trump, the father-in-law, a big favor, it's not just that, as you were mentioning earlier, Anel, how Trump defended MBS after the murder and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi, and of course the CIA leader at the time contradicted him and went public with the fact that American intelligence assessed that MBS was in fact responsible for the murder, and Biden, of course, tried to treat him as a pariah, but then because of the price of gas being such a political hot potato for him, he's now trying to get the Saudi crown prince to... uh, since they're the great swing producer, to pump more oil to lower the price. And, of course, apparently MBS won't even take phone calls from the President of the United States. But you have to go back a little further, don't you, Anel? It was Trump who intervened earlier and championed MBS, who Trump was, in effect, leapfrogging over the real successor, Mohammed bin Nayef, who MBS later imprisoned and confiscated his wealth. He should have been the crown prince. So surely MBS owes Trump an awful lot, right? And Trump's first visit to abroad was to Saudi Arabia. Yes, that's that's true, which was unprecedented. Um, No, I mean, it it is accurate. Mohammed bin Nayef had been crown prince um, under the, the new King Salman, who became king in 2015 after King Abdullah died. Um... And, you know, when when Salman decided to name his own son Crown Prince, um, it was it was sort of a shock of like, who who is this guy? And, you know, we we know that there are many in Washington who continue to see Mohammed bin Nayef as a better choice because he had worked very closely with the United States in the early 2000s when both the U.S. and Saudi Arabia were were really quite concerned about terrorism. Um, The Saudis were dealing with their own internal um, terrorist organizations and and attacks. And so there was this notion that, although obviously uh, 9-11 very much shook up the U.S.-Saudi relationship, there was this view that after that, Saudi Arabia was, was trying to change its behavior and trying to shut down some of the the more egregious examples of religious intolerance that it was spreading around the world. Um, and so it's been interesting to now see Mohammed bin Salman also take up that narrative and claim to, you know, be, be changing Saudi society. And I mean, he, he is, in fact, changing Saudi society. I was last there in 2019. And the fact that women can drive is significant. Um, I mean, again, they, they should have been able to drive before. So it's not it's not doesn't deserve that much credit, um, but he has he has done a lot to try to to change sort of the the day to day life in Saudi Arabia. But he's done it through extreme levels of repression. And so in the past, we when we had seen the Saudi government trying to impose changes, it was often met with a lot of backlash. And this time we're not seeing that in part because he has been so repressive, even dismembering journalists that oppose him, for example. Um, but it remains to be seen what, how, how long he'll be able to maintain it. Um, you know, no leader can, can contain extreme levels of um, 
public opposition forever. And so essentially, MBS has has promised his people that he is going to transform Saudi society. He knows he needs U.S. assistance with that. And so I think this reflects his hope that Trump will come back in or or a, a Trumpian figure, um, ostensibly perhaps one affiliated with Jared Kushner, uh, will come back into the White House and that he will be able to do the same sorts of um, transactional politics and that there won't be any mention of things like human rights concerns that the Biden administration has said they're committed to. I mean, it, it, I would argue that the Biden administration still has sold over a billion dollars in new weapons to the Saudis since coming into power after saying they were going to end um, sales of offensive weapons to the Saudis. So this notion that Biden is really holding MBS accountable, I don't think actually stands up uh, to to the empirical record. But we do know MBS liked Trump a lot better than he likes Biden. Well, it's amazing to think. I mean, we all know that Donald Trump's business record is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, uh, the Russians bailed him out all through the 90s and, and continue to this day from what at least we're trying to learn because he's been so proactive in stopping investigations into Deutsche Bank, etc. But the same applies to his, his uh, son-in-law, who in order, when he was courting Ivanka, he bought this absolute white elephant, 666 Fifth Avenue, which then he had a huge balloon payment on of $2 billion and, and would have bankrupted the Kushner company. And Middle East investors of shady provenance came forward and rescued him. And now, in his latest venture of a $2.5 billion private equity fund, he gets $2 billion from MBS. So this is one lucky guy, right? <laughs> I mean, it is it is really astonishing. And, you know, I, I don't I, I don't know that, um, you know, that that Kushner's investment fund, the affinity group was, you know, I think they're hoping to get more than just the two point five billion. But it just says a lot about it that that right what the what the Saudis contributed makes up, uh, you know, four fifths of their entire fund of two point five billion. Um, and just in general, knowing that um, things like the the WhatsApp chat that he had with MBS that then MBS used to to gain access to additional information um, that he shouldn't have had access to. And, and the fact that Kushner himself should not have had a security clearance, but that Trump just sort of railroaded that through. Uh, I mean, I, I do think it is important that although what the Trump administration did was truly egregious in terms of the the blatancy of the corruption and um, it sort of reached new heights that un unfortunately, I mean, corruption in Washington is not new. It's just the, the Trumps really took no care to try to hide it. Um, but again, it, I, I do think it's it's just important to keep in mind that what Trump and his administration did was not so unprecedented. They were just uh, much more out in the open about it. So this notion that you know now now we're back to the straight and narrow and and there's no more corruption in Washington, I mean that's that is also inaccurate. But I, I do think a return of a Trump presidency or someone like him would be quite damaging because we know that the the interest that would govern policy would be 
these sort of insider deals between the sort of, you know, the mega wealthy folks like the Trumps and Mohammed bin Salman dealing in their own personal interests rather than pursuing policy that ostensibly is supposed to help the American people. Well, Anel Shilan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Anel Sheline, who's a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. She's worked as a journalist in Egypt and Yemen and was recently a fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and is currently completing a book on the strategic use of religious authority in the Arab monarchies since 9-11, focusing on the cases of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Morocco and Oman. We're going to take a brief station break it back examining the results of Sunday's first round in the French elections ahead of the April 24th runoff between President Macron and the pro-Putin right-wing candidate Marine Le Pen. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Philippe Malier, who is a professor of French and European politics at the University College in London. In 2007, he was awarded the Marcel Liebman Chair in Political Science at the Université Libre de Bruxelles, and his main publications are about the French Socialist Party, French politics, and European social democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Philippe Malier. Hello, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Philippe. And the election results for the first runoff for the French presidency are interesting, not obviously as good as Macron had hoped for. He won 27.6% of the vote on Sunday, followed by Le Pen with 23.4%. And then the leader of the left-wing party, Mélenchon, got 22%. And the openly racist, Eric Zemmour got 7.1%. What's extraordinary, though, Philippe, is that the traditional parties, like the right-wing Republicans, got only 4.8%, and the socialist candidate and Paris mayor, Anne Hidalgo, only got 1.8%. So there's been a massive shift in the political party structure in France, has there not? Yes, I agree with that, and that's probably the main point, or one of the main points of uh, yesterday's election, uh, first round. Um, imagine, you know, we're talking here about the Socialist Party, a social democratic party, moderate, center-left, and Les Républicains, Republicans, uh, which is the main conservative party. We're talking about the two parties which had so far dominated French political life for the past 40 years, you know, going alternatively into government each of them, you know, for, for a spell. So it's a bit like, you know, in U.S. terms, you know, either the Democrats or both, in fact, the Democrats and the Republicans suddenly would go down to those very, uh, very low figures that you just uh, mentioned, you know, 2% for the socialist candidate or even less, and less than 5% for the conservatives. So it means that really their era as, you know, dominant parties in the French 
uh, in a French party system and in, in, in electoral terms is over. And it means something new is uh, appearing. In fact, it's been on for a while because when Macron was first elected five years ago, he did it by already uh, siphoning off uh, large parts of the socialist electorate because he was coming, although never socialist himself, he was a minister in a socialist-led government five years ago. And he took with him a chunk of uh, socialist voters. He also bit a little bit into the conservative one, but not but less. That's why the party for a while gave the impression he could get away with it. But that's no longer the case. Now, these two old parties, once really the main parties in French political life, uh, are now very small uh, parties. They, they, they're struggling for, they're, they're really fighting for their life. They're even dying, the socialists. It's absolutely dire what, it's, what the situation is, because when you get to that low point, of course, it means you no longer have any, you have very few members in the party, uh, you have very little political clout, you, no one talks about you anymore. That's really what the situation is for these two parties. So, Philippe, tell me about the role of the conservative media mogul, Vincent Bolloré, who is often referred to as Francis Rupert Murdoch. Uh, his uh, right-wing cable news network, CNews, has been promoting the racist uh, candidacy of Eric Zemmour, who got, what, 7.1%. Mm-hmm. It would seem to me that this second round will be all about whether or not Macron can get the 22% Mélenchon uh, voters, the left-wing voters, and conversely, whether Le Pen can get the 7.1%. Well, she probably will get the 7.1% of Zamora's people, but I guess the trick will be for Macron to win over Mélenchon's voters, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think if we look at the figures, we might think it's a rerun of 2017 when already uh, the two uh, front runners were Macron and, and Le Pen. And I think Macron today back on the camp and trail said, well, look, uh, I'm not going to uh, sound too gloomy because, look, I've, I've increased my uh, the, the total number of votes uh, I got in the first round. That may be true, but so did Le Pen and the third guy in the race, uh, Mélenchon, for the radical left. So it's quite meaningless to put it this way. I think what, you, what, you, what one has to do now is to look at the vote transfer between candidates to the two main contenders now. How will it work and will it work? And I think, in a sense, this is, this is my take on it now, I think Macron put himself in a very, very difficult position. Why? Because during his five years in office, he's antagonized, he's angered even very much, um, segments of the French electorate which he desperately needs now in order to get reelected, i.e., Left-leaning voters, to start with. Left-leaning voters are absolutely uh, angry and really wouldn't want uh, to vote for uh, Macron. Just a word, I mean by left-leaning voters, I don't mean radical left or anti-capitalist left. Of course, there are some in France, but I mean just people who normally would vote for, um, you know, socialist party, social democracy or Greens or, you know, this sort of electorate. We, we call them in France, broadly speaking, left 
and, and of course, the radical left. Those people, and I think all of them in a way, uh, wouldn't want to vote for Macron now. So there's a lot of convincing to do. And why? Because those five years have been very bad for them. If you work, if you are a public service worker, if you are a young person from an ethnic minority, if you're a woman even, you didn't do very well with the, the sort of woman. Uh, um, for, for the, and, uh, and all the populations, all the poor, uh, it's been very, very, very difficult for them. So what I feel now, and this is very new, the difference between now and five years ago is that five years ago, Macron was a kind of fresh a politician coming almost out of the blue. No one knew him. He had been for a little while a, a minister in a socialist-led government. Now, of course, he's, he's governed for five years, and he's governed very much on the right. He's, he's shifted to the right, and he has kept shifting to the right during those five years. And it comes to the point where you know people are saying, rightly or wrongly, of course, but that's the perception that you find when you really talk to people uh, carry out interviews, uh, things you read in the media, that people, left-leaning voters, will not be ready or will be, will be very hard for them to vote for Macron again because they think, rightly or wrongly, that there, is, there isn't much of a difference between Macron and Le Pen. I, I beg to differ on that, but that's the perception. And the perception is important because, in the end, what Macron needs in the second round is people to go out and vote for him if abstention is high, meaning, you know, if you're a left, left a leaning voter and you will vote, but you will cast your vote for no one, you can do that. So it's a blank vote. It's a void. That will, won't help me much because uh, Le Pen and Macron are neck and neck after the first round because um, Le Pen has a vote reserve uh, coming from the far right with Zemmour. Because there are conservative voters, you know, those who voted for Pécresse in the first round, who will be voting for her as well. And what's more, there might even be some people who voted for um, Mélenchon. And I think I've just seen the figure, the first projection tonight. Um, about 20% or so would vote for Macron in the second round. And about the same figure would go for Le Pen and the rest abstaining. So that's not very good because Mélenchon for the radical left got uh, up to 22%. So that's a lot of votes going to either Le Pen or abstaining. My guess is that it's going to be a very close uh, election, very close tie this time around. There won't be 20 points difference like, or 30 even, like five years ago. Right. Macron defeated Le Pen five years ago, 66% to 34%. And again, I'm speaking with Philippe Malier, who's a professor of French and European politics at University College London. In 2007, he was awarded the Marcel Liebman Chair in Political Science by the University Libre de Bruxelles. And his main publications are about the French Socialist Party, French politics and European social democracy. And, and of course, in moving to the right, Macron, you know, he's adopted anti-emigrant rhetoric and behavior, having the refugee tents in Calais routed. And he's even praised the great soldier, Marshal Pétain, the pro-Nazi leader in France in the, during World War II. And uh, he praised the police. And the police, of course, uh, were quite violent to the Yellow Jackets, the Gilets jaunes protesters. And he's done very little about climate change, curbing emissions, etc. 
and the rich have gotten richer in Macron's era, and the poor have gotten poorer, right? So is that a summary? Yeah, it's quite it's quite a summary. And, and again, I, I'm, I wouldn't say that two candidates are to be put on the par. There are big differences. If you look at Le Pen's program, I would label it like uh, all the political scientists I know, particularly in France, uh, far right. She's far right. You know, this idea that Le Pen would be some kind of closet socialist because of the working class uh, backing now in certain parts of France is, is of course, wrong. It's, uh, it's a joke. Uh, Le Pen remains a far-right candidate. That's why. I mean, what awaits France in two weeks' time is, is, a, is very, very momentous, a very important vote. And I think the perception, to go back to my point earlier, the perception is that on a number of issues where, you know, uh, you, would, you would not expect a moderate centrist or center-right president to behave in in, in such a way. He he, he went a very long way into sort of adopting uh, the rhetoric, the discourse, or even the the policies of uh, the hard right, if not the far right. Uh, There have been lots of issues, the way he's been, for instance, policing uh, social movements. You mentioned the Yellow Vest movement, I think lots of police brutality. Uh, himself and his and the ministers in, in government uh, have been also uh, have been talking uh, in a way about you know national identity in a very exclusive way, uh, targeting uh, the, the second religion uh, in France, Islam, and and uh, the faithful of that religion, the Muslims, uh, passing a very controversial bill, uh, the so-called separatism bill. Uh, which really ostracizes further the minority, which has been ostracized and victim of uh, racial discrimination for for a while in France. He's done all that. And uh, one of his ministers, uh, a few months ago, in a televised debate with Marine Le Pen herself, said uh, to her that she had gone soft on Islam. So there's plenty of evidence that Macron has been playing with fire. He thought that by adopting... uh, sort of far right's rhetoric and some of its policies, he would neutralize uh, Le Pen. And of course, that's the opposite, which has uh, happened in a sense that that has further legitimized uh, Le Pen. And let's let's also uh, not forget that uh, Le Pen was helped by another candidate, Zemmour. Zemmour came out of the blue. Zemmour was no politician. He was a journalist, media pundit, and he came into the uh, the fray with the most extreme rhetoric, uh, completely obsessing about Islam, uh, using the uh, white supremacist uh, uh, theory of uh, great replacement. Um, and of course, uh, if those uh, very extreme views, racist views, uh, Zemmour has been uh, twice condemned by French justice for incitement to racial hatred. Let's also not forget that. So he's made Le Pen look almost moderate by comparison, which is not. She is not moderate. But Le Pen well, und- understood. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, Le Pen is a buddy of, of Vladimir Putin. She's praised him on any number of occasions, and he funneled money through a, a Russian bank to her some time back. You've already got Orban in Hungary. If you have Le Pen in France, that'll be a devastating blow to Europe in the midst of a war being prosecuted by the Russian, which is not just against the Ukrainians, but it's against uh, liberal democracy and the rule of law. It's, it's against the EU 
Putin is more afraid of the EU than he is of, of NATO. So this is an extraordinary situation. And, and do you think Macron contributed to his downfall to the extent that he was used by Putin as kind of decoration and he looked kind of weak and feckless by trying to be the peacemaker when all along Putin was determined to go to war? Well, I think uh, we shall see, you know, but it's true that uh, to some extent he's been very much manipulated by by Putin. Uh, You you could always argue that uh, he tried to negotiate peace uh, or at least to stop or to prevent war before Putin uh, launched the invasion and 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 its war and his war on Ukraine. Uh, he was lied to and he was made to look a little bit ridiculous in the end. But I think I think that the voters didn't didn't mind too much initially. I think there was a big boost in the poll for for him initially a month ago uh, because at least he was the guy who was trying to to negotiate with Putin. But now of course that stand is is looks a little bit uh, useless. Uh, he hasn't achieved anything. And we start seeing now, like recently on Saturday, Boris Johnson going to Kiev to meet with Zelensky. And I think people are starting to say, well, probably should have done that, going to Kiev in solidarity with the Ukrainians instead of uh, wasting his time hours on end on the phone with uh, with, with, with a dictator. And um, so, yes, probably uh, on Ukraine, uh, Macron had probably wasted an opportunity because his opponent, uh, Le Pen, is clearly probably the, the closest ally you can get in French politics to Putin. No doubt about that. Uh, I think she's uh, even to, to the point that she's received uh, funding from uh, Russian banks uh, a few years ago. So just in closing then, Philippe Malier, could Macron use the example of Brexit as a warning about what would happen with Le Pen? And if he certainly ought to be able to capitalise on the horrors of what uh, Russia is doing in targeting civilians in Ukraine to tie Le Pen to Putin, which is quite legitimate. So can he use the example of Brexit? If you vote for this woman, you'll end up like the Brits, paralyzed with an unworkable Brexit, and also point out Le Pen's ties to this butcher in Ukraine. He may do that. He will probably try to do that, warning that with... uh Le Pen, uh, France, she would probably try to leave the EU altogether. She would for sure try to leave NATO. She would be an ally to some autocrats in Europe. You mentioned Viktor Orban. She's very close to him. And she's the far right. You know, she's the historic far right in, in France. You know, the, the sort of heir of not only a father's party, but uh, remember that the father's party was launched in the early 1970s with uh, people who had been uh, in office in the Vichy regime, the, the, the fascist regime which uh, collaborated with uh, with uh, Nazi Germany. So that's the affiliation. So he will say all that, but he would probably do it with caution because France has become a bit of a hotbed of Euroscepticism of late. Uh, people, you know, if you look at the various electors, including the one of Mélenchon. Uh, people have gone quite cold feet you know, regarding uh, EU integration for, for different reasons. So um, Macron, to be fair, is probably the last uh, sort of uh, uh, main politician in France who quite uh, sort of supports further European integration. So it's, it's something he's got to be very careful the way, uh, because that 
could be a double-edged uh, double-edged sword if he sort of pushes too hard the, the EU subject uh, when he knows that a lot of people now are not too keen on further European integration. So um, I think he will probably stress the usual thing, which is Le Pen would be would be a threat to democracy, would uh, change a lot of uh, French basic laws, you know, uh, and would curb uh, public freedoms, would discriminate uh, further against minorities. You know, one of uh, Le Pen's uh, proposal is to ban the, the, the wearing of hijabs in public spaces. She also has a very illegal anti-constitutional uh, proposal for the time being, of course, but she, she is in power. She could try to change the law in order to, to implement one of her flagship uh, proposal, which is national preference, which is a uh, policy which would directly discriminate against the non-French, non-French nationals. So uh, for the time being, it's illegal, but that's really part at the heart of the program. Well, Philippe Malier, let's stay in touch and fingers crossed that you don't have another pro-Putin right-wing fascist in the heart of Europe after <laughs> what's happened in Hungary. Um, we all have reason to be nervous, and I thank you for joining us. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Philippe Malier, who's a professor of French and European politics at the University College in London. In 2007, he was awarded the Marcel Liebman Chair in Political Science by the University Libre de Bruxelles, and his main publications are about the French Socialist Party, French politics, and European social democracy. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking into solutions to the trap Ukraine and Europe find themselves in as they finance the war against them and trade with the enemy. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Bell, the former chair of the Finance and Business Management Department at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York and the author of The Green Bubble and Impure Science. And he has an article at Le Monde, Breaking the EU's Dilemma. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Bell. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And, of course, your article in the French newspaper Le Monde, uh, Breaking the EU's Dilemma, that's the English version, and the, the French version is somewhat different. But nevertheless, what you are talking about is a phenomenon that we have never had in history before, where the victims of aggression are paying the enemy. I mean, how crazy is that? It's the craziest story I've ever seen. And I've discussed this with, uh, you're quite right, I know of no other example. It, uh, It would be right out of a Humphrey Bogart movie about World War II. It's just bizarre. The uh, Ukrainian government is receiving somewhere in the neighborhood, you get different figures and looking at different places, somewhere around $2 billion a year as, in effect, rent on the pipelines. There are two major pipelines that run through from Russia, through the Ukraine, onto Slovakia, and then onto Germany. 
and there's a third one that runs farther south. And four of these, but the main ones are those two. They're most they're mainly above ground, with uh, stations also above ground that keep pressurizing the the gas so it keeps flowing. In other words, these things are absolute targets. They could be strafed by jets. They can be hit by artillery shells. Anytime anybody wants to blow them up, they could be blown up. So the Russians are paying the Ukrainians right now $2 billion a year, roughly. And the Europeans are buying this gas and paying many times that. The price, you can't get an honest figure on what the prices are, but because they're all in special contracts, that sort of thing. At the same time that the Europeans are providing arms to the Ukrainians and have and are actually implementing economic sanctions against just about everything Russian except anything to do with the shipment of this gas. And there's also an oil pipeline that comes down from Belarus through part of it, half of the pipeline, I don't know half, but a big chunk of it runs through the Ukraine and then on to Western Europe. It could also be blown up in a heartbeat. These things are just wide open. Nobody touches them. It's the weirdest story I have ever seen. It, right there is the grounds for a movie. Well, but the Russians are the last people that are going to cut these pipelines off. I mean, that would solve the European dilemma, as your article points out. The EU is paying Russia to <laughs> to destroy Ukraine and threaten them because all yeah. the massive amount of the Russian budget comes from the gas supplies and Gazprom, its whole modus vivendi is to be reliable. So they're not going to... In fact, the, the Europeans and the Germans, for some reason or other, outsourced the storage of gas to Gazprom. It just shows you how deeply right. dependent they are. The whole thing is totally right. bizarre. So right. the Russians aren't going to cut the pipeline. There's no way in the world. So, no, no, the Ukrainians, because that $2 billion is the main source of revenue, I am told, for the Ukrainian government. They're, they're actually being paid by the people who are murdering them. So, it's, but the point of your article is that the Europeans, and they have said, the, the Germans in particular, that they want to get off this dependency and they want to get off quickly. The alternatives, like liquid natural gas, which is more expensive than the Russian gas, and there aren't enough of the terminals. The one terminal right. that the French have in Dunkirk, tell us about that, because it's the costs of LNG are very high, and building the terminals is even more expensive. So walk us through some of the dilemmas that the Europeans face if they want to get off Russian oil and gas, and how there's a really cheap solution that apparently nobody's right. really looking at. No, no one's looking at it. I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. The Dunkirk uh, liquefaction, uh, it's actually regasification. In other words, look, these are highfalutin terms for two very simple processes. And the gas, in order to ship the gas from wherever it's produced, say the U.S. or Russia, if it's 
comes by the tanker. They have to cool it down. They have to freeze it essentially until it becomes a liquid. So gas, uh, liquefaction simply means freezing the gas. And regasification is the highfalutin term for heating it up. So it goes back, it can flow as a gas and be put in the pipelines. The regasification plant at Dunkirk cost 1 billion euros and took six years to build. So there is no practical solution for this, uh, this crisis with bringing in liquefied natural gas. The, the uh, EU managed to get three, they're licensing, and we don't know how much it's going to cost, from private companies, basically big ships that are regasification plants. And they're going to float those over to Germany and hook them up to a pipeline and that will then the, the, the liquefied gas will be transferred onto those ships and where it will become gas again and then pumped into the gas network. But the, the amazing thing is the price, of the difference in price. It, it's so staggering for this. So the, the solution that the European Union has chosen is the most expensive conceivable price to get energy, well, electricity, in effect, relatively quickly. Eight times what, what the U.S. The input cost is. Okay, if you compare that with the cost of the cheapest, the cheapest source of energy, which is wind power. If you look at the same Lazar report, comes out every year. New wind turbines, if they're put on land, the cheapest, uh, the, the, the range is 26 bucks to 50 bucks per megawatt hour. 26 to 50, depending on the wind, how long the cable is, and that sort of thing. That's a price that includes everything connected with it. The, the cables, everything. That's a turned out cost. Okay. So you compare that to this uh, 45 to 74 that you can instantly see that any on-land wind turbines in Europe, Europe's a big place. There are a lot of places where people could put on-land wind turbines. comes in vastly cheaper than even the cheapest of this gas combined cycle system. And the, for Europe, the gas combined cycle, remember, they're paying a gas price eight times the U.S. price. So they're not going to come in at 45 to $74 a megawatt hour. They're going to come in at $150 or some crazy figure per megawatt hour. But the point that you make, though, in your article, Robert Bell, is that these onshore wind turbines are not just cheaper. They can be put up so quickly. Compare yeah. that. Compare that to the LNG degasification in Dunkirk. It took six years to build and cost a billion euros. And if you try the nuclear route, the big uh, nuclear plant in Finland, that started in 2005 and it cost 11 billion 
uh, euros. So the startup costs and the, and the length, you know, and the Germans shut down their nuclear plants after Fukushima. Right. So the quickest and cheapest way to substitute for reliance on Russian gas are wind turbines. And they There's can... no doubt about it. No doubt. And, I'm sorry, I cut you off. So I well, no, I just wanted to know, because we're running out of time, I wanted to know why yeah. it is that this is not a, a wartime priority, because the EU is at war with yeah. Russia, or Russia's at war with the EU. It's an undeclared war, right. and they're right. trading with the enemy. So right. why can't they get their heads around this cheap, quick alternative? And why are they talking about LNG and all these and, and nuclear when it takes for so long and it costs so much? Normally, when there is something blindingly obvious that could be done and it's not done, it's corruption. The reason is almost always corruption of one kind or another. In the case of Germany, the guy who heads Nord Stream 1 is the former chancellor of Germany who put who, who championed that project and made presumably a lot of money personally. Then there was a, another pipeline from Russia to Germany, Nord Stream 2, which is, was almost finished until the Russians launched this insane war in terms from the standpoint of money, setting aside the horror that they are committing. It, from the standpoint of money, it was insane. All they had to do was sell more gas to the, to the Germans using the Nord Stream 2. Okay, so there's a question, a real question of conflict of interest in Germany. When they shut down the uh, nuclear because of Fukushima, they did only half of what was supposed to be done. The other half would have been a crash program to build up onshore wind farms. And that they didn't do. Now, that probably wasn't corruption. That probably, even if that pipeline may have been corruption, that probably was simply NIMBY, not in my backyard. People said, we don't want these other, we don't want any more wind turbines. We don't like the look of them, that sort of thing. Okay, now Europe is in a wartime emergency and if there were real leadership in Europe, which right now I, there isn't, they would brush aside this NIMBY and have a crash program of building wind turbines and photovoltaic. Wind turbines can be built. A wind farm could be set up in six months. They could have a significant piece of the, uh, that has to be substituted for the Russian natural gas, a material piece of it easily built by next winter, easily. And so far, they're not doing it. It's a mystery to me of, other than to say that Europe is being extraordinarily badly run. Now, there's an election in France right now, presidential election, which will be over in two weeks. It looks like Macron will be reelected. The, all the candidates were for nuclear all except for one. That was a guy named uh, Melanchol. He was for getting out of nuclear. He came in at a surprise third place. He almost, yes, last night, 
almost came in second place in the election, which would have put him in a runoff with Macron. So it would have been an election between the guy who said, I'm going to build six more of these things that take 10 years to build, that, that like that reactor in Finland, which is basically a French reactor. And he's going to build six more of them at the staggering price. That's what he's announced. Whether he will do that or not, I don't know. As we both know, when candidates are trapped in an election campaign, they don't always say what they really want to do or intend to do. So he may not go ahead with this nuclear plan since the other one is so spectacularly cheaper. With the Germans, the uh, Schroeder, the guy who did Nord Stream 1, came from the party that is now running Germany and the uh, Social Democratic Party. So they may not want to attack that. Uh, whatever is behind that, the personal connections, et cetera, maybe they just want to leave it alone. I, I don't have a good explanation for, for why they are doing something so obviously stupid. Well, I, Schroeder is, is, is a discredited figure. I mean, there has to be a yeah. better reason than that. But I don't know I what it I is. Maybe it's just, as yeah. you point out, just poor leadership or lack of vision. But they have to know that they're at war. If the Ukrainians lose, the Germans, <laughs> the Poles, the, you name it, they're threatened. They have to see it. It's so obvious that this is a, uh, a war against the EU and against you know the rule of law and democracy. Uh, yes. So it couldn't be clearer. 100%. No, it couldn't be clearer. There is no leadership on this issue. Maybe in two weeks after the French election, presumably, I hope, certainly hope, Macron is reelected, we will see some leadership. But on a multitude of issues, this is issue number one. The solution is blindingly obvious, which is a massive buildup of wind turbines and photovoltaic. The you know, it doesn't cover the situation where the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, but they have, they can get gas for that, those periods. The goal should be to get at least 75%, if they can, as fast as possible, 75% of the uh, Russian natural gas substituted by wind turbines and photovoltaic panels as fast as humanly possible. They have set a goal for eight years from now. I think, since you can put up a wind farm in six months if you get approval, they should just push aside the approval uh, uh, legislation and, as a wartime emergency, put these things up everywhere they possibly can. Well, Robert Bell, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being here. And again, I'm all the, all the best. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Bell, who's a former chair of the Finance and Business Management Department at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York, and the author of The Green Bubble and Impure Science. And he has an article at Le Monde, Breaking the EU's Dilemma. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org. 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.